This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky. G'day, Diplomates fans. I'm Misha. This week, I have Hagar Shamali back on the program. Now, you'll notice that this is quite a, a, quite a long episode, longer than we usually do, but because of the awful, horrific terror attacks that we've seen inside Israel over the weekend uh, from Hamas, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about those events, uh, why they happened, how we got here, and what we can expect not just um, inside of Israel and Gaza and Israel's response, but also for the geopolitics of the region and the world. We also spent some time talking about U.S. politics, particularly Republican congressional politics and the removal of U.S. Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, and what we can expect going forward inside of the United States, but also what it means for the geopolitics of the world, and in particular, Ukraine. We talk about the Ukrainian situation, and also spend some time talking about the allegations from the Canadian government against the Indian government uh, for the political assassinations or the alleged political assassinations inside of Canada. So it's a big episode. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you are new to the show, please rate, review, subscribe. If you've been listening for a long time and you haven't done it, please do so. But also do hit that subscribe button and make sure that you get the episodes when they drop. It also helps drive us up the charts. So thanks so much, uh, for joining us and enjoy the episode. Hagar, welcome to Diplomates. Good to see you again, my friend. Great to see you always, Misha. Thanks for having me. No, uh, the pleasure is all not just mine, but our audiences. Now, as we record this, uh, we've had some rather shocking events uh, in Israel. Um, and so before we break it down as to what it all means and what perhaps you could just take us through what's happened and what we know as of now, sure. noting the fact well, that it's still moving and we're getting information all the time. Yeah, things are really rapidly rapidly moving. So, um, well, I, I'm, I, given the time difference, I'm trying to tell, I'm going to tell you when things started on my end here in New York. Um, but very early Saturday morning, our time, late Friday night, our time, Hamas lobbed thousands of rockets into Israel, some of which passed through the Iron Dome, by the way. Uh, the Iron Dome has an 85 to 90% success rate. Uh, it looked like it slipped a little bit, I guess. But anyway, they lobbed thousands of rockets into southern Israel and then followed up by breaching the border by storming it with a bulldozer and motorcycles and they and also by sea and and they also paraglided into southern Israel. They these militants marched into up to 15 miles into the country, which is pretty far into the country to get that far without being without facing some kind of resistance. They went across to 22 towns and uh, they massacred people. They took many as hostages, unfortunately, um, and just a very, very gruesome picture. And uh, they then now then after that, the Israeli government declared war and sent their troops to the south of Israel to push Hamas out and began an aerial bombardment, a brutal aerial bombardment, as expected, uh, against in, against Gaza. And that's where we are so far, and that, that aerial bombardment is continuing as, as, as we speak. The numbers that we have of deaths and hostages 
are changing as 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 we as we speak but what we have for now are 700 israelis dead those are the israelis who were killed when those hamas militants went into southern israel and over 400 uh, dead in gaza from the aerial strikes that that you're having now of that 700 by the way 260 of them were uh participants at some kind of concert or rave in the desert in Israel. And uh, so something that really looks like just a massacre. Um, horrific numbers. And then in terms of how many hostages, we actually don't know the full, the, the full number. I've, you know, at the beginning, we saw something like in the 20s, then the 60s. And we really don't know the number because some of those hostages are prisoners of war. They're soldiers. Some of them are just civilians who were who were captured and uh, Israel doesn't, you know, Israel has a very big, they're very big on the sanctity of life. Uh, as many of you may have remember when they, um, the way they negotiated for Gilad Shalit. And uh, I, so as a result, they're not, they're not talking about that just yet before they have all the information. Yeah. And so it's, it's a really shocking uh, event or series of events uh, that's happened. And obviously our hearts go out to those who have been impacted and, people who've lost their lives is an enormously tragic situation um it's really the biggest military event in israel since the yom kippur war in 1973 so 50 years ago um now we'll come back to israel itself and and sort of how we got here but i want to talk about the the implications for this geopolitically because we've now got a declaration of war um you know by israel against hamas uh, who are you know, the occupying uh, force in the Gaza Strip. Um, so the expectation is this is going to attract a devastating response um, from Israel to to you know, Hamas, but whether or not Israel puts troops into Gaza remains a question. So far, you know, Netanyahu's tended to avoid that, but he might be pressed because of the domestic political pressure and it reminds one a little bit of 9-11 where there was a devastating attack in the Twin Towers and other parts of the United States um, and then of course we had 20 years of war in the Middle East um, by the United States and its allies and uh, in Afghanistan and then in Iraq so I suppose what was the aims apart from creating terror here and what were Hamas trying to achieve um, in this attack? And what does it do for the geopolitical picture, at least in the near term, um, where things are headed, given there were a number of things already moving um, in terms of the players in the space? I feel like there were like 10 questions in that one, Michelle. <laughs> Let's start there was. with... So just choose whichever one you want to answer. You know, I mean, but, but again, right, like all things Middle East is super complicated. So as I'm asking, yes. I'm just thinking about many things. But um, why don't we just yes. talk about the geopolitical implications here? Well, no, I, let's start with, but you, the point, you made a question about the context of what led up to this, why Hamas could have done something like this. So let's start right. with that and then move to the geopolitics. Okay, let's do that. Um, I'll, and, and, and then I'll rephrase my multiple questions. <laughs> well, so, you know, the context, understanding the context is really important. And, and you know, I want to I wanna reiterate that absolutely nothing justifies this abject terror and this kind of assault um, and, and, and attacks on innocent civilians, this in any way, by the way, any attacks on innocent civilians, but uh, what sounds like just a complete horrific scene. So, um, but to give you some context of how things have been. So this is first of all, the fifth 
uh, fifth uprising of violence between Israel and Gaza since 2007. These sporadic attacks, we're used to them. We've gotten used to them when Hamas lobs rockets and there's uh, and then an aerial bombardment response by, by Israel that is usually ex- uh, particularly harsh. And then it ends usually after a few weeks. And uh, and But this is unprecedented because the difference here is that you have these militants that crossed the border, that went in, that have committed all these killings, obviously. But the while you've had tensions continuously increasing over the last few decades and violence over the last few decades, things have been particularly tense since December of last year when Bibi Netanyahu took office. And the reason for that is that he and his cabinet have pursued a number of very hard line, very tough, very provocative policies. And to quote President Biden, he called this cabinet, quote, extreme. And they are. They have, for example, pursued settlements and expansion of settlements in a way and in areas that that we would never have we never foresaw certainly not when I when I was in the US government um and in a way that is very harsh by the way where the Israeli military is is basically accompanying and escorting uh, individuals for settlement activity and behavior then you have numerous raids in the West Bank where both militants and civilians have been killed. You have raids that have happened at the Al-Aqsa Mosque and those raids during holidays on top of it. And then you have policies uh, that have been taken to allow Jews to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is something that has, has never happened, you know, for as long as, at least as long as I've been alive. Um, and so... Uh, which isn't since this dated, by the way. I'm not, I wasn't born in 1948. But that said, this is, it, it, just to show you that it's not, um, it's something that's very new and controversial and unprecedented. And so these tensions have been increasing. And so Hamas believes that by pursuing this blitz attack, that they can pressure the Israeli government into gaining certain concessions on behalf of all Palestinians. And that is a very, that is a pipe dream. That is never going to happen. They can cause real pain as we, as we see. One of the things I likened them uh, on my own show, likened them to an angry dog biting a bear. The dog can bite the bear. This Hamas is relatively small when you compare to the Israeli military. It's smaller. It's obviously less sophisticated. It has a limited supply of rockets, ammunition, and troops. It's particularly when you compare to the Israeli military, which is far more advanced, far more sophisticated, and far more well-supplied, and by the way, backed by the United States, which is a defense ally, and, and President Biden said as much yesterday when he said that uh, that the U.S. stands ready to provide anything uh, that Israel needs. But that doesn't mean that that Hamas can't can't really hurt them um, and 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 bite them, like I said. But it does. They are not going to win this war. At the same time, no one wins. You know, I mean, this is both Palestinian, innocent Palestinian, and and uh, Israeli civilians are gonna, are going to hurt a lot by this. So this is the context to tell you of, of 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 what led up to this in advance. Again, not justifying it. Um, the wild card here, and then this kind of is going to get us to the geopolitical question, right? is you have news today that broke that um, that this decision to pursue this assault was green-lighted by Iran, by IRGC officials, at a meeting with Hezbollah and Hamas in Beirut. And so now Iran and Hezbollah are very much a part of this. And uh, Hezbollah's leader, Nasrallah, already came out to say that if Palestinian refugees in Lebanon would like to go ahead and and pursue their attacks, that they're more than welcome to. And 
that's a real, this is, it's very risky. This, this could, this could risk something that typically in the past, these types of skirmishes have lasted a few weeks. This could have real long lasting impact, whether it's related to violence that spreads on multiple fronts or regarding other geopolitical efforts. So then why, if it's likely to draw such a devastating response, um, by the Israeli military um, into Gaza. The Hamas leaders must know this. So why go through with such a brazen, large-scale attack, which is far beyond anything we've seen previously and seemingly has deliberately targeted not is- Israeli military targets, but Israeli civilian targets, so essentially stepping out of a military engagement into a straight terrorism? Why do it? Well, terrorists have different goals in general as a rule, right? As a, as a rule, and when I worked in counterterrorism, one of the things that you saw often is that their number one goal is to harm as many innocent civilians as possible. And it's because it's, it, it creates, it instills fear among the people. It creates shock. It's a shock and awe type of, you know, operation. Um, and listen, there are political goals there. Of course, Hamas has never shied away from its goals. It's, its goals have always been to create, uh, an Islamic state that, that, that is, all of that basically is all of Israel. They updated that later on and, 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 and they claim that they would accept Israel uh, if it retreated to 1967 borders and if it would accept all Palestinian refugees to return um, and pay retribution or reparations and, and so on and so forth. Um, but nobody believes that, uh, by the way. Uh, their goal is to create an Islamic state that, in, that in, encompasses all of Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. And, um, but, they're, but they're not a state and they don't function like that. I mean, we think they do because they control Gaza. But terrorists, at the end of the day, their, their number one goal is to try and achieve some kind of political goal by harming innocent civilians and as many as possible so that it's as shocking as possible and it's as devastating as possible. And they, they know that they're going to receive this, this response from the Israeli government, but they don't care about their own civilians. It's not how they operate. They don't think about that loss. It's just not, it's Mm -hmm. part, it's not part of their calculation, but I do believe that, uh, and, and, and this is, a, <laughs> I said this at one point um, on my show that, uh, and I wouldn't say this of all, of all terrorists, but, but of a lot of them, that they don't tend to be the, a group of smarties. They're really not. Right. And right. Uh, because their efforts rare, rarely if ever succeed. Um, and, uh, but they believe it will. They really genuinely believe that, that by doing this, they are going to have an up, the upper hand, especially when you have hostages taken. I mean, this is complicated. Mm-hmm. This is going to complicate the... A response from Israel. And I think, and you kind of touched on this very briefly, I believe, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would assume that given the hostages that they've taken, there's going to be some kind of ground assault into Gaza by Israeli forces, because there has to be. And but that makes the, it more complicated, as you would know, because essentially Hamas will be using those uh, Israeli citizens as human shields, I would think. Um, oh, yes, for which sure. Which is just horrific to even think about. But mm-hmm. so, okay, so... Let's talk about Hamas. We know their big backer is Iran, you've you've mentioned. One of the things going on in the background here, lots happening in Israel, the state of Israel, which I think we'll circle back to. But one of the things that has been much discussed is the potential of a some kind of rapprochement between Saudi Arabia, Israel, with the United States in the middle of it, which um, for those who aren't completely across all their geopolitics and 
uh, of the Middle East, and it's extraordinarily hard, and I do not count myself as an expert in it. But nevertheless, for Iran, the idea that Saudi Arabia, which is their, their great Sunni rival, forming an alliance with the much-hated Jewish Zionist state and the great Satan of the United States, as they call them. Now, these are these are their words, not mine. Um, <laughs> that's just that that is a horrifying prospect if you're the Iranian leadership. And so, there's some early analysis saying that essentially one of the one of the motivations here, whether it was Hamas's explicit motivation, but Iran was very happy to see some kind of attack staged by Hamas, potentially backed by Iran saying, you know, we, we then we get this awful situation in Israel. The Israelis then, of course, quite rightly obligated to respond and maybe a, a devastating response. And Netanyahu is promising things of that nature. might be bigger than anything we've seen for many, many years, if not decades. And so in that situation, the Saudi regime and the MBS your good friend, a person that we've spoken about a lot, and someone <laughs> that we actively dislike, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. would be very difficult for any leader, including the Saudi leaders, to strike a deal with Israel whilst it's attacking um, Palestinians or Arab-speaking people in Gaza, or for whatever the motivation it becomes, almost impossible to strike that deal. So, I mean, a little bit of three D chess going on there, but is that a a probable motivation underpinning some of this? I the I don't believe that this could have been the motivation to the driving force at least behind this type of assault especially an assault this massive and planned this way and 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 forever however long it took them to plan it I would assume it be they viewed it as a bonus like you know we're going to pursue this because we're terrorists and we're angry at the Israeli government and they believe that this is the way to go about it and that it will succeed but I, I, I believe it would be to them a bon- like bonus, like, oh, and by the way, this might, because of an Israeli harsh response, uh, then uh, the Saudis are definitely not going to do a deal with them now. I could see that in their calculation, not as the driving force, but only as this thought that like, oh, well, what if well, it's win-win, maybe this will happen too. But by the way, I actually don't think it'll derail it too much. And the reason I say that is I think it'll postpone them, for postpone the talks for sure, as, as I think a lot of, of issues now related to anything is Israel or, or Palestinian related is going to be put on hold until, until this war is uh, finished or at least dies down, I guess. And so I see it put being postponed, but the reason I don't see it being unraveled completely is because first of all, both sides stand to gain a lot. And that's why you have previous other normalization deals with the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco. And that's because they gain security cooperation, trade, te- uh, uh, especially trade in technology and, and, and things like that. MBS has a big vision for Saudi Arabia, and he does not shy away from that. And whatever he can do to, to grow Saudi's vision and its economy and its security he's definitely going to put that over Palestinian interests for sure, as every Gulf leader has, by the way. And um, so I think this will postpone it, but I don't think it'll derail it. And by the way, like I said, this is the fifth time, although unprecedented, but this is the fifth time you've had violence between Israel and Gaza. And that the, the, the four previous times didn't prevent Saudi Arabia or any other Gulf leader from, from negotiating with, with Israel. And so that's, that's, that's how I see that part. Um, but that being said, I, you know, I, I, I only see this as 
bad news for Iran's strength and I, I, I mean I, I, the threats posed by Iran and the stability and security in the Levant region in general. And that's because when to see what Hamas was capable of, and we know number one is is terrifying because if Hamas is capable of that, Hezbollah is capable of that. And that's two potential fronts. And this is all happening, by the way, the fact that they were and able and to Hezbollah arm being themselves. sorry, just to Hezbollah being yeah, the occupying uh, power or the occupying regime in southern uh, southern Lebanon. Right. No, it's not. It's it's a bit, it's different. It's a bit more complicated. Hamas is right. a Palestinian terrorist organization that governs Gaza. That right. won an election in 2007 and they govern Gaza. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization in Lebanon that is part of the Lebanese government. Like they have representatives who are right? part. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. And by the way, it's not just and I there it's not just that they're part of the Lebanese government. They 100%, even if the, even for seats that they don't hold and ministries that they don't hold, the, the power and influence they yield, they wield in Lebanon is enormous and is one of the main reasons why Lebanon can't advance. I mean, you, on one hand, it's, we could talk about that another time because of their corrupt leaders. And then on the other hand, it's because of Hezbollah's influence. Um, and, and it's only growing, by the way, no matter what happens, no matter what policies are taken to undermine them. And uh, no matter how many people become disgusted with their behavior, they only seem to grow in their power and influence, which is very, very upsetting. Um, but, uh, but that said, to, to see that kind of strength in Hamas, and, and, and for sure Hezbollah has the same, and how much Iran was able to do, all while the sanctions that were put in place by Trump, the maximum pressure campaign... Those remain in place. Biden didn't remove those. Yes, there were overtures to try and, and, and do uh, nuclear talks, but nothing came of them and there were no sanctions withdrawn. And and still Iran was able to do this. Still Iran was able to continue funding and sending aid and equipment to Hamas. And we know for sure for Hezbollah um, and certainly through Syria. So, you know, this is concerning because it, it feels as though the grievances and the power and the threats that they pose is only bigger. It's only growing bigger. And Israel, the expected brutal response by Israel, I don't see what it will achieve, to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, Israel has every right to defend itself. And I hope that they obliterate Hamas's ability and willingness to fight. By the way, I want to put that, I want to be very clear about that. But I don't know where they go from here. And I, I just think it, the whole region will be, by it will be gutted and you're only going to have more grievances and more anger and more young youth joining these terrorist organizations and feeling angrier about mm. it. Um, because at the end of the day, this is a symptom of a larger problem. And that larger problem is that their Palestinians don't have a state that they can freely and independently govern. And so, um, so one of the yeah. biggest, in, there's many inhibitors uh, to a two state solution. So you know, we could dedicate hours to that, but mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the big challenges is Hamas's control. Essentially, the the, you know, the Palestinians, as they're constituted with between West Bank and and uh, Gaza, uh, Hamas essentially is a not not really a viable partner for all the reasons that you've already gone into. They're a terrorist organisation. You can't sit down and have proper ne- negotiations with them. In fact, the Palestinian Authority would much prefer. Hamas to be gone, um, and then perhaps creating a situation where once again we can start to look at what does a two-state solution look like with swaps or what have you. Is there a viable way 
for Israel or even Israel and its allies, the world, to remove or decapitate Hamas? Is, is, or is that just not possibly done, um, given how embedded they are in, in Gaza? Because it feels like you can't get anywhere whilst Hamas remains in charge of Gaza, certainly now with what's happened, but even before that. It's very difficult. I mean, this is this is literally what I worked in when I was at the Treasury Department was undermining their finances, among other terrorist organizations in the region, um, to prevent their ability to pursue these types of operations. And they continue to find ways to to finance themselves, to fundraise, to to get equipment. Um, and they do that in countries, by the way, in other countries that welcome them, like Turkey and Qatar and others. And um, and so it's very difficult to decapitate them. And you're asking, by the way, uh, this kind of big dissertation level question, because for organizations like this, terrorist organizations that, that also govern in some way, uh, shape or form, there, I have heard many academics pose this question of, well, is there any way to con- to kind of shift them? And and because they're not going away, is there a way to kind of convince them to to stop being so nefarious and and become some kind of more rational player? And and my belief is no. And uh, and you only need to look at Iran to see that. And you know that Iran is an actual government, and there's no amount of incentive, no amount that you can do with the with the regime. To let to to have them participate in the international financial system, to uh, for them to, to change the way they pursue foreign policy, and their and their larger goals in the region, right? And so if if they're not going to do it, why would a terrorist group do it? Um, so I think that I hope that answers. Um, well, it, it just makes you wonder because you know, the Egyptians look at Hamas and see the military outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood to some degree. And then Saudi Arabia looks at Hamas and says, okay, that's Iran's attack dog against Israel, or at least one of them, um, given Hezbollah as well to the north. And so then, uh, and clearly the Israelis have zero time for Hamas and quite rightly so, terrorist organisations just attack them, but also basically doesn't acknowledge their right to exist. And so you, you sort of think, there might be scope there for that, but it just, it feels just so intractable now. And just whilst Hamas remains, I, I just struggle to struggle to yeah, see how I, there could be viably anything. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think there are any kind of viable partner for negotiations. I, I, I really, the thing that I, I hope is, um, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, really genuinely what happens in this region in is particularly between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and, and I'm talking about the governments and the militaries and then Hamas here, obviously um, is because of Israeli and Palestinian leadership. And, uh, and, and I, I was it I sat at the NSC in uh, from 2010 to 2012 when the Obama team and the colleague who literally sat an arm's length away from me, worked tirelessly to try and pursue a peace deal between the two sides. And the two sides could not, they couldn't get anywhere near anything. It felt futile to even Mm. try and prioritize and push these negotiations between them. And it's not futile, by the way. It's important. But that the reason why every administration since Clinton has attempted this and then brush it aside is because of the leadership at the top on both sides. Right. Um, and so I, 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 there's also a difficulty anyone in any negotiation, if it's my red line or my zero sum position is, is 
whatever the thing is. And if both sides have that as their red line or walk away things, and there are many of these things within the uh, that, that negotiation, basically becomes an impossible negotiation because there's no there's no deal space, right? No, no. Um, when I was asked the other day on why is why is this issue so polarizing? Why do people get so angry and upset about it? And I joke that that when you talk about these issues, before you even open your mouth, somebody wants to throw a tomato at your face, and and they miss they misunderstand and mishear everything everything you you say. And so I try to really be as objective as possible, but. Um, the thing that, that I tell people is that it's because they're not debating politics. They're debating, they're, they're arguing over history, over religion, over land, over family grievances and, and, you know, and, um, and injustice. And, and so how, where are you going to be able to negotiate there unless you put all that stuff aside and try to rise above it? You can't. It's very difficult. It's impossible. It's intertwined. Um, it's very difficult. No, absolutely correct. So try to unpack very quickly some of the geopolitical things and and, and a lot of things to come uh, as this un- unrolls um, and the response, we see more of it. Um, turning to Israeli politics... One of the things that I think, yeah, you know, people are talking about this as Israel's nine eleven, and not unreasonably, I have a lot of uh, Israeli friends and Jewish friends that are just absolutely horrified, and it's awful. And you're seeing a big moment of unity now um, in Israel, not unreasonably, given the way the country's been attacked so horrifically. But there are people asking how this could have happened. It would appear, at a minimum, much like nine eleven, a massive intelligence failure. Uh, there's reports that Hamas were executing major exercises in the weeks leading up to this uh, attack, uh, this quite sophisticated attack across multiple locations using multiple theatres. And so how could this have happened and what does this mean politically uh, for Netanyahu? How, that might, how do you see that potentially driving events going forward? Yeah, I, you know, I, the intelligence failure here is hard to really comprehend. Um, especially, you know, I work, I worked with Israeli intelligence when I was in the U S government and they were known as the best in the business, uh, especially for their region, for knowing everything happening on the region. Um, and, and in real time, usually by the way, and I don't believe there's any kind of conspiracy theory here. I think that they were asleep at the wheel and there could be a number, number of reasons for that, that they were prioritizing other threats. Um, that, uh, their military, uh, in terms of personnel were busy doing other things like protecting settlers. They, you know, just a lot there that feels like they were asleep at the wheel. There's really only no, there's no other way to explain it. It's a, it's a devastating failure because some of it is intelligence related. Some of it is related to the border. Um, I've been to that border when, uh, in, in my time in government and it's, it's hard to understand how how anyone could go near it without without flares fired or shots fired. Um, now I understand that they were that 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 militants really tons of them charged the border, so I understand that. But this is something. This is a reality that Israel faces on a daily basis. They know the general threats coming. They know that there's always a threat of violence coming from Hamas. And I mean, you can't really you can't even bike near that border without someone firing a flare or telling you to get the hell wow. out. And so I don't I really don't understand how 
they were able to get so lucky. And it is, that is what it is. They're not smart, Hamas. They were lucky. Um, but uh, I have a feeling they're going to have a real reckoning right now inside Israel. And listen, after 9-11 here, nothing in the way we do our intelligence and our intelligence analysis or even policymaking is the same. It's all, it's all different. And our own, our, even our, our organizational structures are different and it's, it's benefited us enormously. And so um, I expect something similar in Israel. But you kind of touched also on an important point about the internal politics going on in Israel and, um, and for Bibi Netanyahu. Right, and, and specifically, I, I'm really curious because there's now accusations and counter-accusations going on around who essentially potentially undermined Israeli readiness. Now, there's, this, there's arguments around uh, the intelligence failures of where should they have known this was happening, um, but also with the changes, changes to the, uh, the Supreme Court and essentially many, many Israelis saying, well, they weren't going to participate in reservist activities in the military and what that has done to readiness. And so far right are accusing those who have been protesting against the government for jeopardizing Israel's security, whereas those protesters would say, well, this was our counter response to an outrageous power grab and a major change to Israel's democracy. So where do you think that sits? In yeah, things. you know, it's I, I, it's hard for me to know for sure how much, uh, how much effect the fact that you had all this these protests and um, and peaceniks and and those who were refusing to to uh, to to be in the reserves, for example, how much that had an effect on the readiness of of the military. For well, we don't know, but but for example, yeah. the. Yeah, the, head, the former head of Israel's security agencies came out and said that Israel's reserve, sorry, its military readiness was being compromised. Um, so he wasn't a serving official, but someone that who would know, right? And so that's something that is just, you can't imagine these things aren't going to be unpacked further. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, the, how that will affect this, they're going to have a real reckoning. With this, you know, I mean, the whole state is going to have to have a reckoning with this issue. I mean, if this guy is saying that, then I believe it, right? I mean, for him to say that it is affecting their, or that would affect their military readiness, I think in a moment like now, they're all going to unite anyway. They're going to set aside a lot I of their issues. Right. Yeah, and I mean, that would make sense, by the way. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not well, sure. Well, when, when there's a threat that we saw or the attacks that we saw, that which were still ongoing, you can't expect people to do otherwise, right? I mean, yeah. this is a horrific, unspeakable mm-hmm. attack. Yeah, but it But, it, but that it, doesn't last. A... Those moments of unity don't tend to last, unfortunately. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to say. You make a really important point because while I expect them completely to unite right now, um, once things calm down... Uh, I, I think that that a lot of folks are going to have they are, they're going to ask this big existential question of well wait a minute Netanyahu put himself as the security guy right he was Mr Security quote Mr Security allegedly his whole thing was you may not like all the hard tough you know far um, conservative policies I put in place but at least I guarantee your security and that's his whole platform and brand and now it. Given as as and we talked about earlier the context of those you know since December how tensions are at an all time high because of Bibi Netanyahu's policies, people are going to have to really question whether ultimately he's endangering Israeli citizens because of his behavior, and and when you put that on top of 
the judicial overhaul he pursued and how Israeli, and by the way, hundreds of thousands of Israelis protested against that. I mean, they really hated that. Um, and with just reason, by the way, you know, it, it, I, I hope actually that when things calm down, that they do have this, um, that it undermines his leadership. I don't think he's a good leader. I don't, I, you know, I think, I think he ha- he is endangering Israelis with this type of behavior and, um, and policies again, doesn't justify in any way, shape or form this abject terror. But, um, but I do think that ultimately that unity will fracture all of those fissures and cracks will, will resurface. And, um, and it's, it's going to play out very heavily in Israeli politics, which are always volatile, by the way. I mean, the way they, they lose seats and, and move and prime ministers get unseated is, is, is so common anyway that I think that BB is up next. Yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to see how, um, how Israel's politics becomes less polarized um, when this is all washes through and people start, well, yeah, when the horror of it, settles down to some extent and and people are able to reflect on how the hell did this happen um the finger pointing regrettably i think will start pretty furiously and and the politics are already heading into a a very hyper polarized hyper partisan way and and netanyahu had been relatively cynically um riding that wave uh and so you know, we all watch uh, in horror whilst uh, extending our enormous uh, sympathies and, uh, to everyone who's been impacted. It's just absolutely horrible, and the images are just shocking. And the yeah, idea really that there are people, as we record this, be have been abducted um, into into Gaza is just horrible, and being held by Hamas of all organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really terrible horrific. stuff. So, and look, I, this is difficult to record given. Um, the events are still moving as we're doing it. So uh, I think we've done our best to try to unpack it whilst at the same time being mindful of this as being a tragedy that's unfolding in live, in real time. Um, Shifting focus slightly to your part of the world, the United States, talking about polarised politics. (laughs) Um, And the US always heavily involved in the politics of Israel, politics of the Middle East. We've touched on its role trying to broker this uh, this tripartite agreement between itself, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, which would have been transformative for the region and may still happen, to your point. But as we currently sit here, the United States Congress does not have a Speaker of the House. Well, there's a, I guess, a, a what would you call it, a, a figurehead or a, a temporary Speaker in place. But this is the... You know, the third in charge of the U.S. line of succession. He goes president, vice president, speaker of the house. And so the term unprecedented gets thrown around a lot in politics, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's unprecedented, it's unprecedented. But it is unprecedented for the Speaker of the United States Congress to be ousted by his or her own party. So what the hell, how do we get here and what's likely to happen next? Um, because it has enormous implications for everything we just discussed, as well as many other things happening, not just in the United States, but around the world. You know, Misha, I keep saying how, and as you know, I'm always looking, 
outside to uh, abroad to opine and to point the finger and and I make a lot of fun of of governments and countries that don't have their shit together and then I keep saying that that folks on Capitol Hill keep making it more and more difficult for me to point the finger and criticize and it makes me so angry sometimes I'm like just we're not supposed to be the ones that have all these issues stop making it so difficult for me to criticize others um it's a shit show basically and uh you have uh, so, technical term, technical term, yeah. Of course, of course. We used to say <laughs> shit burger in, in government. Everything was a shit burger. Well, in Australia, we would call it a cluster, you know what. Oh, so- yeah. Oh, I like that one better. Actually, that's a good one. Um, so, listen, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, uh, was voted, I believe, nine months ago. I might, I might have the months off a little bit. Yeah, but it was as- the start of the year, 15 yes. votes. Exactly. Yep. And it was a very contentious. He lost like I can't I think it was one, two, three votes. I can't remember how many votes happened. It was quite it, it an took embarrassment. 15, it took fifteen votes for him to, to get in. So he was unsuccessful. Oh, it took fifteen rounds? Votes. My god. Yep. <laughs> I don't yeah, even yeah. remember so it was, this. Four, it was it was yeah, well that's right. It's a, one of the uh, great moments of democracy. But uh no, so it was Fourteen unsuccessful votes, and eventually on the fifteenth, uh, he sold enough of the furniture to to finally get the uh, holdouts over the line. That's right. Well, the holdouts are the key here because they're the ones who caused the latest mess. So the holdouts are are a small group of far right Republicans who are very conservative. Who, I, frankly, in my own opinion, shouldn't call themselves Republican. They're just some some other party. They're extremely conservative. They're very difficult. They are, they are well, not against... even conservative is probably not the term for them. They are far right reactionaries and they don't really yeah, have a plan. Well, I mean, peculiar, well, that's right. The peculiar thing about the removal of McCarthy is typically these are power struggles with a purpose. That being, okay, I don't like you as my candidate. I have a different candidate in mind. They don't even have that. This was just pure wrecking, um, which right. is the yeah, very difficult. Um, I hesitate to use this term because we just discussed actual terrorism at length, but this is political terrorism in the sense that it has no real purpose other than just to destroy um, one's opponents with no real governing thesis or ethos about what they actually want to get done other than we just want to, to essentially make uh, the country ungovernable. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Their number, their raison d'etre, their number one goal is to break things down rather than build things up. They any and 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 to be a thorn in everyone's side for every single effort, policy, bill, they just get in the way and they are so small. It is such a small group of them, but the way the numbers are right now right. in um well, the Republicans only have a five seat majority, right? And so uh, Kevin McCarthy had almost the worst outcome at the midterms of 2022 thanks to his good mate Donald Trump. Essentially that they thought they were going to have a big red wave victory. It didn't come. And so that very narrow majority in power is essentially every Congress uh, member in the majority party uh, to really be the, the kingmaker or, or queenmaker, depending. So, yeah. Sorry, I keep going. Mm-hmm. I keep uh, jumping across you. but No, no, no. I'm, I love it. Are you kidding? And, and you're right. It happens all the time. Um, when you have these narrow margins, then you've got this kind of handful of people or sometimes one or two who become the kingmaker. Uh, and it's very frustrating because they kind of hold the rest of the country hostage with their, with their, with their goals, except like, as you said, their goals are not, their goals are just to break things down. So 
after we uh, fast forward nine months and and numerous threats from this group of folks led by one congressman in particular matt gates from florida um numerous threats to 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 unseat mccarthy and and what finally the straw that broke the, the camel's back was a bill to prevent the government from shutting down so they passed what's called a stopgap bill which is basically just a, a bill that allows funding for a short amount of time so that the government doesn't shut down. And that bill, the, the, the way that bill was, uh, the, how that bill looked, uh, upset the far right because at the end, but like, like you said, because their entire goal is to just be stubborn and get in the way and break things right. down. So Gates, Matt Gates says same thing. He leads the charge in calling for McCarthy's ouster and, and preparing the vote. They have the vote. The, these eight Republicans vote against McCarthy along with every single Democrat representative, which, by the way, the moment I saw that, I thought that was a bad idea. And Democrats came out to say, to explain that the reason they had no interest in saving his ass, and I get it. I get why they don't want to save his ass. I understand it. He's not done them any favors whatsoever. Well, he's also started an inquiry, a, a highly, yes. highly dubious uh, inquiry essentially into a prospective impeachment into Joe Biden, um, which was just purely red meat to try to buy off. He, he basically bought himself one additional week as speaker uh, by agreeing to that investigation, which even the uh, chief witnesses for the initial hearings of that have said there's not enough evidence uh, to prosecute Joe Biden for any potential issues or, or high crimes or misdemeanors. And so that's no, the extent, I mean, that's, that's their lead witness. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but you can understand why Democrats are not feeling particularly favourable to Kevin McCarthy, given how craven he has been in the pursuit of the speakership. You know, oh, you go I back, agree. I you agree. Go back I further, totally... You go back further in the sense of in the aftermath of January 6th, uh, where he first bagged Trump and then a few days later he was down in Mar-a-Lago kissing the ring because he, he's only ever wanted this one job. And so in the end, you sort of say to Kevin McCarthy, was it all worth it just completely selling your soul or your ass or whatever you want to call it um, to increasingly radical demands of the um, of the Republican caucus to the point where you got to be speaker for nine months? I mean, it's Listen. not exactly covered in glory of a legendary political career, but... No, I know he's the he's the he's the. <laughs> but no, but, but the thing. why do you think? No, I'm curious. Why is it a mistake for Democrats to to not dig him out of his own self dug hole? Listen, he's this not is, been able to deliver this is anything. My, I have to, but this is my opinion. You know, this is just analysis. A lot of people will disagree with me on this, of course. No, because, it's an interesting point. Because the next per there is literally no way the next person is going to be better. In fact, the next person will likely be worse. And the reason they're going to be worse is because they're going to want to kowtow more to those extreme Republicans so that mm. they can maintain power because that is the only goal these representatives want. I mean, they cannot, they cannot bullshit and say that they actually care about the problems the United States faces and the problems of the regular American citizen because that is not what they spend their time fixing. It is this political theater and it is these efforts to to block things and to fight just for the party and and it's it's just disgusting. And by the way, I really I really think I'm right about this because the two candidates now, those who've thrown their hat in the ring are Representative Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise. And Jim uh -huh. Jordan, if people thought McCarthy was awful, Jim Jordan is way worse and he doesn't hide that he's worse that's i mean he has been 
He is the, well, the, the different. The difficulty where someone like Jim Jordan believes the things that McCarthy was forced to do to. Yeah, it, yeah. it's the difference between yeah. someone being a craven. <laughs> I often wonder who's worse in politics: the people that are craven in pursuit of power, or those are the true believers. And you sometimes wonder. But look, I, yeah, it is a peculiar thing. We the, and the Jim Jordan, by the way, the, was endorsed by Trump, which right. says a lot. This is this is a guy who has been behind every push against. You know, he he believes Trump won the election. Just, I, I want to make it very clear just to show how, how off this guy is. It's not just the roles he has played in protecting Trump with the Ukraine investigation, in running after Hunter Biden, you know, and his stupid laptop and wasting everyone's time on this and, and crafting, by the way, the House Freedom Caucus, this, this group of folks that, that are very far to the right and extreme. He also, by the way, just I, I think that that says it all. Anybody who believes that Trump actually won the election, mm. how can you entrust anyone in a, in a leadership role who believes that? It, and I don't think he's lying, by the way. I mean, maybe he is, but I don't, he doesn't. Again, it's not like, like you said, it's not like McCarthy. He actually seems to believe the things that McCarthy was forced to say or do. Um, and I don't know, and I can't predict who's going to win this between Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan, because really anything could happen. You could have a lot of bat behind the scenes negotiating between Republicans and Democrats to try and get the less crazy <laughs> in there. But Jim Jordan is bad news. He, if he wins, yeah. I really think Democrats will regret their vote. I really do. Uh, and on a on the straight political basis, um, unfortunately, I know I'd imagine some of the calculus going on in the Democratic caucus would be: well, the more extreme that the House Republicans are, the better for Democratic prospects in the House and Senate elections, potentially presidential elections, even um, in the twenty twenty four election next year. And I agree with you. The 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 problem around this sort of red team, blue team politics is that um, the, when you have a vast majority of people that are quite sensible and probably privately could have views that are you know, much more like what, everything we've just discussed right now, but then publicly feel compelled that they can't strike deals, um, you sort of go, okay, then you really are empowering the, 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 the fringe minority. Um, if the Democrats don't do anything to assist Kevin McCarthy, then you you are empowering your Matt Gates's or Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Um, having said that, unfortunately, I'm sure Democrats. You know, I can hear all my Democrat friends right now saying, "Yes, but we do try to do reasonable things," and then we're up against really radically extreme propositions from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, or we do a deal like we did on the. Um, funding arrangements for the debt ceiling, which then McCarthy can't deliver. Um, so you sort of say, well, why should we assist him? Um, so, uh, yeah. I get it. It's not their job to save the Republican Party. It's broken. They can't right. unite on anything. Um, and right. I get it. it. I just, it's, yeah. since 2016, all I have seen is repeated kowtowing to this small, yeah. loud minority yeah. because... Right. They're, it's like they're too afraid to go against it because it works for voting for, for voters right. and for their base, and so I see no reason. There's why. There's various different incentives, whether it's fear, whether it's cravenness, whether it's just a general radicalization. But whatever reason, the complete inability of the Republican establishment to resist the Trumpist 
you know, cancer essentially is eating up the entire party. Um, yeah. It, it's hard to see where, how this resolves itself um, unless they, you, you can't, you know, I speak from someone who's a Labor Party person, everyone knows that. Labor Party for many, many, many decades had a threat to its left from the Communist Party, actual communists, not pretend communists like we talk about, but actual Soviet-linked uh, cells and, and, and had to go to war with it um, and, and force it out. And you can't wish away those, you know, the extremists from taking over your political party or any movement. You have to take them head on. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, crazy. You accommodate them until they take you over and kick you out, basically, is what happens. Um, it, it, that's the lesson of history, lessons of political movements, is that extremists aren't be, can't be negotiated with they have to be resisted and defeated and delegitimized um and it's the only way to the only way to do it um but the republican party has just not been able to do that now one of the big things apart from everything that was happening in these negotiations um is the question of ukraine funding so the united states currently the bill that was passed just before kevin mccarthy lost his gig as speaker was for a clean funding bill, essentially for, to continue to fund the government, apart from Ukraine funding. And so where does this leave? We, we'll turn to Ukraine more specifically, but where does this leave US support for Ukraine, where we started 18 months ago, support very high, gradually been fragmenting, more voices calling for either throttling of funding or greater oversight of funding or no funding whatsoever. So where do you see U.S. support for Ukraine as it currently stands? It's clearly still strong support from Joe Biden and many, many, uh, even many Republicans, including Mitch McConnell. But where do you, where do, you, where is this heading um, going forward? Yeah, you know, I don't want to be alarmist about it because I they're they're going to continue getting some kind of aid. The the Defense Department will will still scrounge up what they can find. Um, but but when it comes to large aid packages, it's it's tricky right now. Kevin McCarthy apparently promised Democrats after the government shutdown bill, the stopgap bill, that once they passed that, he would work with them on a Ukraine aid package. And now he's gone. And Jim Jordan is not is not going to be the one to do that for sure. If if he gets if he gets the job. And that is concerning for a lot of reasons, not just because of you know, why we support Ukraine and why it's so important, but also because the EU can't carry this on, on its own. And that's very clear. And they know that. And, and on top of it, you're talking at a time when Poland has already said they're not going to send weapons, any more weapons to, uh, to Ukraine. They've stopped. Slovakia has now elected a pro-Russia leader who has vowed to cease all Ukraine aid. Now, Slovakia probably ran out of aid anyway by now. They were a very strong supporter. But um, but at this point, I don't know how much more they have anyway. But that said, it, it's not good. And, and, and at the same time, by the way, NATO and the UK have come out to warn about major shortfalls in the production of ammunition. In fact, uh, a NATO official said verbatim that we can – the bottom of the barrel is now visible and has pleaded for an increase in production of, of ammunition. Now, to, to whom he's pleading, I don't know. Hopefully, I don't know, companies, I don't know how this works. But but uh, hopefully somebody is out there making yeah. this faster. But the fact is that a lot of countries, Germany is a good example of this, they have timed and coordinated their aid with the United States, 
for everything that they've held back on, they end up doing only when they see the U.S. do it first or right. in conjunction with the U.S. And so if the U.S. isn't going to be there for the next year or just very little, that's, that's a major problem. It's a major problem because it will, direct, it will have a direct impact on Ukraine's strength and ability to push further in its counteroffensive. Um, and you don't want morale to, to go low. You don't want that kind of confidence and faith in, in the Ukrainian military to, to decrease. Um, that what they've done so far is nothing short of remarkable. And, um, but I am, I'm really worried about it, unfortunately. No, and look, the big winner in all this is Vladimir Putin. Of course. Um, the expectation was that he's trying to make it to November of 2024, hoping for a change in uh, leadership in the White House. Uh, but given what's happened in the Republican caucus uh, in the House and the funding as of now, then he's already had an early victory um, and it would only give him more confidence. In terms of Poland, it's, it's a little bit of a complicated question that because right. uh, there's a dispute between the Ukrainians and the Polish around grain um, sales and the fact, obviously, that Ukraine can no longer export its grain through its seaports because of the Russians' breaching of the grain deal. Uh, and so Poland's going through an election at the moment and the incumbent party is very fearful of essentially farmers being cranky about Ukrainian grain coming to disrupt their markets. So politics, as much as anything, is driving that decision as well. Um, and so uh, there's now a dispute between Poland and Ukraine in the in the WTO on trade, would you believe, of all things, uh, around grain. So... Um, Politics is ever complicated, but I, I think the Polish question will resolve itself at some stage after the election. I don't imagine that Poland's suddenly going to abandon Ukraine, but it is a, a complicating factor in all this. And if the US um, walks away from support, well, then almost all, ho all hope is lost. Now, very quickly, there was a big meeting of foreign ministers of the EU in Kiev. Do you see that as significant in any way? Talking about the ammunition, clearly that is a big problem, especially, essentially, we knew that this shortage was coming ukrainian and and the russian are using ammunition in artillery shells in a way that no one's essentially no one believed the war would be fought like this anymore and i think in many ways it's been a naive running down of the industrial base in the western in nato countries but nevertheless we're ramping up the royal we but there's this gap until next year when all these new factories come online um now just as a quick throwback to what we're talking about with israel if israel suddenly starts demanding many more artillery shells that's going to cause problems um, for the United States in its stockpiles and also question marks around the Ukrainians. So what do we make of this meeting in Kyiv? Important, not important, or just another show of support? Yeah, it's more, it's neither important or not important. I think it's really just more a show of support because that's as much as they could offer. And it's, it's, it's not to say that that's not important, but it feels a little bit... Um, not like last ditch effort, but here, but, but, you know, they know Putin is watching, they know what's happening in the United States. Um, but that's all they could come out with is just, is a louder show of support. Um, you know, I should add, there's a really interesting statistic here that I, that came out and maybe I only see this with a glass half full. I'd love your opinion on this, but a very recent poll was taken here in the U S and, uh, showing that 70% of Republican leaders are in favor of continued aid to Ukraine, 70%, that's a lot. And 50% of Republican Americans, just voters, so 50% of Republican voters um, support doing whatever it takes to support Ukraine. Um, and those numbers, while they may have decreased since the Ukraine war started, 
they are still very positive. That's how I view it. And I understand that we're in a, this, you know, weird phase here and we've already uh, belabored this. So I don't want to go back to the fact that we have this weird situation right now where this, this small group of Republicans are basically the kingmakers. But, but that said, sometimes I think that even if Jim Jordan would win, could he really hold back? Could he really not do anything for Ukraine given numbers of that kind? I don't I don't think so. I mean, I would like to think that democracy would would prevail. It's a fascinating. But the thing is, isn't that fascinating? We, yeah. Well, there's two fascinating things there. One is unfortunately in the United States is where this is most pronounced, but you know, there's a wild situation in US politics where you'd almost rather cozy up to Putin than to a Democrat if you're a Republican, which is just wild to me. Yeah. Um but also, unfortunately, on those numbers, and so people are now looking at foreign policy decisions through a, a, a domestic political prism, like essentially what's my team saying before I make a decision whether this is a good or bad idea. Um, unfortunately, though, when you look at that number, theoretically, yes, uh, I would say, yeah, Jim Jordan should be able to do something. But and there's a function in, in politics, which is, is this a, are they single-issue voters, i.e. the people that have a... If you're a Republican who says you should support Ukraine, is that enough for you to switch your vote or is it the only thing you care about or do you care about lots of other things? And then you might grumble about, oh, I can't believe we're not going to send aid to Ukraine, but okay, it's not really my number one concern, right? Voters are complicated and have a lot of competing things in their head a lot of the time. Sometimes when you, it's very frustrating when you're running campaigns, you look at, you look at uh, uh, people's responses to policies or in focus groups and they make quite literal no cohesive sense. People hold ideas that are absolutely in competition with one another and, and hold them vociferously. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I worry that, you know, this, this, this more than anything, when I look at the battlefield, Ukraine's going to win. They're driving the Russians backwards. The Russians have extremely low morale. But the way Russia would win is for the rug to be pulled out from under Ukrainians um, by uh, by its allies and friends and in the United States, which is on the verge of having not expended a single soldier's lives or a single drop of American blood from not a, a massive strategic defeat on one of its long-term adversaries in the Putin's Russia. It's just wild to me that the party of Reagan uh, has gotten itself into a position where they want to give a strategic... Not just um, an exit, but a victory to to Putin's Russia is just enormously disappointing. Now we've gone way, 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 way over time here, but <laughs> I think for reasons that make sense because we had a really important conversation there about a very uh, important issue and, and an awful situation, a horrific situation in Israel. So. With that beautifully levered, you know, that beautiful light introduction to what was supposed to be the light part of the show, um, John Dory, we always do a little bit of what in the world. Uh, now, what is your what's the story, John Dory, in terms of crazy world news um, for this week? Well, apparently, bedbugs have taken over Paris. And look, the, some French folks, by the way, are going to hate that I said <laughs> that. <laughs> but... 
uh, by any definition of what I've seen, they've taken over Paris. And uh, they so they're, they've been filmed. They're on the metro. They're on the train seats. They're on bus seats. They're in hotels. It's just a mass infestation. And it's spreading. It has spread to... Marseille and from there to Morocco and you know this is not a joke now Brits are concerned that it's going to spread there and um the French minister came out health minister came out and said you know no one is safe and what he meant was that no one was safe from infestation and meaning that no you know you could be any person and you could pick up or carry these bed bugs and um and then but that because that then obviously created panic and uh and so then he came out to to tell everybody that everyone should remain calm that like it'd be fine but meanwhile companies that deal with this and exterminate you say they're completely overwhelmed and i really just think that they should adopt them as pets frankly um you know just live with them well, it's been so long I was, that- say, <laughs> I, I was already thinking of you know if i was Someone that was uh, likely to take geopolitical cheap shots. There's jokes here about uh, yeah, dirty Frenchmen needing a shower, or the me. French, <laughs> or the French surrendering to an army of bedbugs. But of course, I would never make jokes like that. And if you have any complaints, please send them to Hagar Shamali, care of the <laughs> Oh My World Show, um, because they're definitely not my jokes. And you're laughing. I'm not. This is that'd be an awful thing to say. Anyway. So my um, what um, the world actually is, so is, this, is a much more this is yeah the go French, keep going go go ahead no 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 I was no, no no was there, <laughs> no no was there you want to round your point out or <laughs> no um I had a I had a point I was going to say at the end they should adopt them as pets um anyway yeah like I mean this is right now the uh, I view this as world news because it is. It is not just shocking and crazy, but because they are exporting this outside of France, apparently. And so beware. I won't make any more jokes, uh, though it invites it. Um, Now, my – this is actually not a humorous, um, crazy bit of news, but given everything that's happening in the world, and you and I always talk about just how fast the world's spinning and you know, as we're planning this show, we in between the time we plan to record it, we have these these events, uh, you know, this awful attack in Israel. Um, and so one of the things that has happened that we have not even raised here, mind you, we, we've somehow got through a show without mentioning China or Xi Jinping, would you believe? Um, but is what occurred, the allegations of Justin Trudeau, the Canadian government against the Indian government and, and uh, Modi's regime for an extraterritorial political assassination inside of Canada of a Sikh activist, uh, you know, the Modi regime says that they are terrorists, but of course this is a, a broad definition of terrorism, i.e. they're political separatists, that they want to have their own state. Um, uh, Khalistan, is that is that right? Is that what, That's is right. It? Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, not, you're nodding. Um, very good. For a moment there, my, my brain froze. But basically the proposition, now I've debated this with friends of mine who say, oh, well, Trudeau's under political pressure maybe, you know, there's all these, um, for those who don't follow Canadian politics, there's been big uh, revelations and scandals involving Chinese political interference um, inside of Canadian politics and that the idea suddenly that Trudeau's cracking down on other foreign interference uh, is politically motivated who wants to look strong on that question. I'm sceptical of that because... Um, one, the Canadians are a Five Eyes partner. Two, background briefings that I've seen on this now indicate that there was a lot of intelligence shared 
particularly by the United States with the Canadians, about what had occurred, that it was likely the Indian government has had some hand in this killing. And that also, um, quite regrettably and quite worryingly, that we've been seeing an increase of this type of nationalism, Hindu nationalism, by the Modi regime. And many of us who desperately want India to rise as a peaceful democracy as a counterweight to other authoritarian regimes have turned a little bit of a blind eye uh, to some of the more problematic elements, uh, particularly around civil liberties and around sectarianism uh, and favouring of one ethnic group over another in, inside of Modi's India that I didn't, my gut said I didn't know what it would be and we still don't know. This has not been proven out, but nevertheless for a government to make this accusation is a huge deal. Huge, huge, huge deal. And I don't believe they would have done it on a whim. And in fact, Trudeau tried to raise it with Modi at the G20 and was basically fobbed off, which then he then went and gave the parliamentary um, uh, commentary about it. And so I just look at this type of behaviour, if it, indeed it's what has happened. This is the type of thing we would associate with Putin's regime for a very yeah. long time. And the world did turn a blind eye to much of Putin's bad behaviour. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to draw a straight line between the two, and nor am I saying that we're likely to see Modi's India turn up like Putin's Russia. But for a foreign government to murder a political rival in another country is the reddest of absolute red lines that exist in foreign politics. And... This is something that well, we can't ignore, but also that we should watch with enormous concern because I see this as a a big lead indicator of a, of a bigger emerging problem. Um, and so I don't know if you have any views on that. No, I mean, it puts, him, it puts Modi in the club of Putin and MBS and President Xi. And, right. um, you know, to... to it, it's, so on one hand, it's concerning for, for the reasons you just said, you, we can't have this behavior go with impunity because it'll just continue. It'll incentivize others to do the same thing. Other dictators who who want to repress or intimidate or kill dissidents and activists abroad. Um, that is the last thing we can see. But by the way, the other thing that could be concerning is the West and, and Europe and, and the United States is actively courting India to serve as a counterweight against China right now. And... No. And so it'll be very curious to see how much they let that prioritize their behavior versus right. showing some kind. They have to show something. Well, um, it'll be interesting. We have to wait and see what the uh, investigate. And look, the investigation may very well in the end clear the Indian government, in which case, yeah, then I think Trudeau would have questions to answer. Mm -hmm. But um, the world is really investing a lot in Indian dem democratic responsibility through the Quad through the current leadership of the G20, uh, and so generally seen as an extraordinarily important actor on the global stage. But great power comes great responsibility. And, uh, you know, we, we the royal we, parking up Putin, also made an assessment around the peaceful rise of China, which has proven to be incorrect, and we held on to it for a very, very, very long time. And so, um, you know, hopefully this is not the sign of, when we look back and go, you know, 
there were really worrying signs and we didn't do enough about it early enough. And to your point around, will the world prioritize its strategic objectives? Well, you mentioned MBS. Joe Biden wouldn't, of course, meet with MBS, called him a killer. And then when inflation and petrol prices and potential to do strike deals to put Iran in the box, all those things came piling into the intray. Of course, um, the relationship more or less normalized, notwithstanding that the MBS had killed uh, a journalist in their embassy, um, Kasogi, despite inviting him there. So anyway, on that very merry note. I feel like um, your story is way more important than the bedbugs. Well, this is not the purpose. I've cheated. <laughs> the purpose of this, the purpose of this segment is to talk about a really lot of important stuff, and then finish with something fun and entertaining. But I cheated because we had to get. We couldn't have an episode where we hadn't discussed that, and so. But it's my show, so I get to cheat. I mm-hmm. break the rules if Fair I enough. like to. Um, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but anyway. Look, thanks so much as ever. Now, how can people catch up with your content if they want, Hagar? Thank you. It's uh, I'm at at Oh My World Show uh, on uh, Instagram, on TikTok, and on YouTube, most importantly, Oh My World Show, where I have a weekly show that is 10 minutes, and I cover geopolitics in a fun and easy way, and I do a lot of satire while I'm at it, which means I dress up like a lot of world leaders with wigs and bad accents. So at Oh My World Show, um, and me personally, I'm at at Geek Out with Hagar because I love when people geek out with me. Well, thank you so much, and uh, it's been a very long chat, but a great one. And uh, you know, we wish all our love and support for the people of Israel during this difficult time and those who are close with the state of Israel. But uh, bye for now, and look forward to catching up soon. G'day Diplomates fans, thanks for tuning in. If you're loving Hagar's work, do follow her on Instagram, Twitter. There's uh, information about how you can follow Hagar in the show notes. And again, I just want to extend uh, my personal and the show's sympathies uh, to everyone who's been impacted in these awful terror attacks inside of Israel. It's absolutely heartbreaking, the images we've seen. And my heart goes out to everyone who has been impacted and is still being impacted uh, as these events unfold. It's, It's absolutely horrific to see. And because of the length of the show this week, I'm not going to do a question, but there will be... Uh, so please do keep sending those questions through to me by Twitter or email or however you contact me. I appreciate it. You get me on at Misha Zielinski on Twitter and DM me there or on Instagram, or you can email me at misha.zielinski at gmail.com. But thank you so much. Please rate and review us. Don't forget to subscribe. Tripping over my own tongue. Bye for now. See you next time. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.